So in, in Kenya, we have the M-Pesa system. So you have mobile money that you then put into a mobile wallet, right? You never see the dollars. You never look in your piggy bank. There's, there's nothing physical about that, right? So I think there's something about flipping that coin over and remembering, okay, there is savings here. This does represent something in the real world. That was Channing Jang, who runs the Busar Center for Behavioral Economics. It's, it's based in Nairobi and kind of offices in, in around Africa and in India. And he was talking about one of the many real-world studies that they've been doing to apply behavioral economics to real-world problems. So, for example, how could they encourage Kenyan workers to save money when their pay gets quietly filed away into a digital wallet? Rationally, they should be optimizing their finances no matter how they're paid, and earlier ways of thinking about this problem have focused on the typical calculus of economics. They started with a classic economist question is like, well, how do you calibrate these financial incentives? But by now we know people don't always spend their precious time optimizing every choice to align with typical incentives. Sometimes you just need a big old gold coin. This thing was like really, really heavy and weighty. It makes it feel really valuable. Maybe if we give people a physical object that sits in their pocket, constantly reminding them to make better choices with their money... That'll be what pushes them to save. They tried this coin idea alongside a bunch of other ideas, like text message reminders and different kinds of incentives. But the big winner, the strategy that led people to save the most money? The coin just blew everything away. People are funny, aren't they? But hey, whatever works. Behavioral economics started as a fringe idea, a bold reimagining of economics that ruffled lots of feathers, and it could have fizzled out. It could have gotten buried in the annals of academic history, but it's flourishing. Not only has it gained acceptance in mainstream economics, but it's also burst out of the ivory towers and is being applied in real situations with real people, not just in North America and Europe, but across the globe. And the problems they're solving aren't just whether cab drivers work shorter hours on busy days. No, the Busara Center is an example of how they're trying to solve really deep problems with massive implications, like how to help people who only make a few dollars a day save little bits at a time. And Busara is not the only group that is tapping into behavioral economics. In 2015, the World Bank found that there were over 200 organizations using behavioral economics as the basis for their work. Everything from nonprofit NGOs like Basara to government nudge units to private consultancies. And this is surely an undercounting of organizations that may have a single behavioral economist or a behavioral economics team that informs their decisions. Behavioral economics is here, baby! You're listening to They Thought We Were Ridiculous, the unlikely story of behavioral economics, a five-part podcast series on a radical idea in economics that shaped the way we see the world. From Behavioral Grooves, I'm Tim Houlihan. And I'm Kurt Nelson. From Opinion Science, I'm Andy Luttrell. So far in this series, we've seen how a ragtag group of economists and psychologists dared to challenge the dogma of a whole field of study and wouldn't give up the fight. Now we see the fruits of that labor. Episode 4, Behavioral Economics Goes Mainstream. Okay. Before we get to solving global issues on the ground, let's pick up where we left off, still in the ivory towers. 
And one of our friends in those towers is Drajan Prelik. Drajan is an economist at MIT whose early work dates back to the Russell Sage Foundation in the 1990s. We caught him while he was visiting his home country of Croatia. We wanted to know what the plan for behavioral economics was in the first place. It was a critical strategic decision that behavioral economics would not have its own journal or its own uh, organization and so on. That, that meant that uh, behavioral economists had to make their case in front of the entire economics field. And I think that was uh, fantastically, uh, you know, it was a wise decision. So the plan all along was to avoid letting this new movement get relegated to some sub-discipline, fenced off from real economics. They didn't want to form a special journal of behavioral economics. They wanted their work in the same room as everyone else's, have it judged on their terms. And it seems like it worked. Here's Richard Thaler. I fought for years to make sure there was not a journal of behavioral economics. I said, we have to get papers published in the top journals, and we have to engage with them. There are still people over in the economics department who think that I'm very much mistaken. But right now, in 2021, they are further from the mainstream in economics than I am. And virtually every issue of the American Economic Review has one behavioral economics paper. I think it's changed the way that economists do their business. Like the rationality assumptions that were so dominant when we all started out are no longer nearly as widespread. That last voice was economist and psychologist George Lowenstein, and he thinks this whole movement didn't just gain popularity among economists tinkering away in their offices. I think it's really helped to make economics in general more accessible to mainstream people because the bedrock assumption of conventional economics that um, people are perfectly um, rational, maximizing agents when most people hear that, they, it just instantly strikes them as obviously false. Paradoxically, maybe we've helped to bring economics to the masses. And let's not forget the Nobel Prizes. Can't forget the Nobels. <laughs> Herb Simon, Danny Kahneman, Richard Thaler, they all were recognized with the Nobel Prize in economics for their work in what is ostensibly behavioral economics. Colin Kammerer at Caltech helped us understand what these awards really mean. I mean, Nobel Prizes is partly this part, it's part of what they're for, right? Is to, is to typically, there's a, the recipe is that you give it to some, some person or a couple of people who did something that was very unpopular first, or people were very skeptical of, and then it became less unpopular, and then became popular. And then it's like, oh, yeah, we kind of knew that all along, you know? Um, <laughs> But in the Nobel Prize in economics, it's also kind of the way of saying this is an important thing for society, whether it's environmental economics or poverty. You know, there's usually some good thing for the world to know more about aspect to it. I mean, it's gotten to the point that the question is really, how do we treat this so-called movement now? I really question why there's a field called behavioral economics. That's Sendhil Mullanathan, a professor of computation and behavioral science at the University of Chicago. Like, I know Thaler does. I think he still does. Doesn't actually make sense. Like, shouldn't all economics be behavioral economics? 
and so what is this? Like, why, why is it? Like, if a student came to me now and said, I want to be a behavioral economist, I'm like, yeah, everybody, that's what you are. You're doing economics. So what do you want to work on? So I, I do worry that the existence of a field and the continued existence of a field called behavioral economics is a form of failure perpetuating, which we shouldn't perpetuate. Do, do you think it had to be identified as a domain at the beginning, at least? You know, groups need identities. Having some notion of kindred spirits makes a big difference. And an identity label definitely helps you. But at some level, you kind of need things where there's program cell death. And the identity label needs to have program cell death because, you know, at some point the identity label becomes exclusionary. And we want everybody to think they're, quote, a behavioral economist. We want economics to be behavioral economics. So, you know, at some point it has to disappear, I think. I wrote a paper called The End of Behavioral Finance, maybe 20 years ago. Richard Thaler again. And I said I was hoping that the field would someday disappear because economics would become as behavioral as it needed to be. And I think some of that is happening. More and more of the economists who don't think of themselves as behavioral economists have written behavioral papers. And that seems to be happening all the time. And that makes me very happy. You know, it's been more than 7 million copies that have been sold worldwide. That's Daniel Kahneman. After developing seminal ideas in psychology about making choices and forming judgments, among a bunch of other influential ideas, he took his wisdom to the masses in 2011 with his best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow. You know, I had been teaching. I mean, every, every chapter there comes either from a lecture that I had given or from something I had taught. And it turned out that I had a lot of stories to tell by that stage. But I didn't like the book, you know, when I thought, I, I certainly did not anticipate uh, that it would be successful because I was trying to write simultaneously for two audiences. I mean, I wanted to be taken seriously by professionals and to be readable by the public. And, and I didn't think that I was, I thought I would fail clearly with one or with the other. Kahneman's concerns were not well-founded. More than 10 years after it was originally published, it continues to hold a spot among the best-selling books on psychology. But it wasn't just Kahneman bringing behavioral economics to the masses. A small market had emerged around this time with a bunch of behavioral economists writing trade books. In 2008, Richard Thaler teamed up with Harvard Law School professor Cass Sunstein to publish their book, Nudge. The book's premise was basically that we could get smart about how we design people's financial choices, acknowledging their biases and penchant for irrationality to help people make better decisions. The book leans heavily on Thaler's expertise in behavioral economics, but... I mean, Dick doesn't like when I say so, but not just social psychology. I mean, it's, it doesn't have all that much economics. Also in 2008, Duke University professor Dan Ariely published a book called Predictably Irrational. That was also super popular. Its premise is probably familiar to you by now. People are not as rational as economists would have you believe. 
These and a smattering of other books drummed up public interest in behavioral economics. We asked London School of Economics professor Liam Delaney if he thought these books helped catapult behavioral economics into the mainstream. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I can't think of a more influential book of its type. I'm definitely, I'm not going to win many prizes for forecasting because when I saw Nudge, I have to say, I just genuinely didn't, didn't strike me that this would be such a big book. And I think the reason it's been really influential is actually because it comes from so much background activity. I think Predictably Irrational and some of those other books, even Thinking Fast and Slow, are just compelling reads and like people can see elements of their own life in, in them and they're just good as, they're just brilliant as popular uh, science books. But there's probably another important factor too. Maybe you recall something else happening in 2008 when these books were coming out. Before they crashed, those big financial firms had an unquenchable thirst for subprime loans, and that created a big opportunity for mortgage brokers. Home foreclosures are at their highest level since 1979. There's just panic in the air. It's a little scary, yeah. I think a lot of people are going to be hurt. We are in crisis. We all know that. This turmoil is a major threat. The man long viewed as an economic guru admitted today that the financial crisis has exposed flaws in his understanding of the economy. The collapse of the housing market and the 2008 financial crisis showed that standard operating procedure in economics hadn't really considered people's faulty psychological programming. Some have said that, quote, the economic crisis also is a crisis of neoclassical economics, close quote. We really don't have time to unpack this all the way, but suffice it to say that the ideology of traditional economics could not easily explain the housing bubble, but behavioral economics could. In 2011, University of Cambridge professor Kamal Munir summarized the situation saying, quote, free market economists are searching around for answers and a new breed of behavioral economists are selling books like wildfire, close quote. The whole debacle even became the subject of an Academy Award winning film featuring a cameo by our guy, Richard Thaler. So you had a major financial event and a bunch of accessible books written by experts in their field explaining the totally reasonable sounding premise of behavioral economics. And suddenly, you've got these once fringy ideas being spotlit on a public stage. So then what? <laughs> Economists are in, the public is in, world leaders are in. Could behavioral economics be used for good? We open the series by talking about a program called Refund to Savings. It's a program that tinkers with the interface of a tax filing software to nudge people to put more of their tax refund into a savings account. But we were a little cagey on the details. According to researcher Stephen Roll, some of these little tweaks had big payoffs. The, the big thing that we have found in tax filing is actually something similar, which is that defaults matter. We made saving the refund seem like the default. In other words, when you get to the end of the tax filing process, the program says, okay, time to put some of your refund into a savings account. But I guess if you don't want to, you could click this other button and skip this step. 
It's set up this way to make saving money seem like the next obvious step in the process. You would have to deliberately say no if you didn't want to save the money. This is all the product of a huge insight from behavioral economics. Default options are powerful. We're just so lazy. If something's already been selected for us, it's easier to just go with it than to think carefully about whether we should or not. A good example of this is retirement savings. The standard economic model says that people know how much money they'll earn over their lifetime so they can work out how much they'll need when they retire. They just make sure that they save that amount of money. This is obviously not how real people work. So the question is, can we adjust savings decisions to nudge people to save money when they might not ordinarily do so? So what can we do to nudge people? Well, consider one way that corporate retirement plans could work. You get hired. Hooray! You're filling out your paperwork, but then the company says, we offer 401k retirement plans and you're eligible. Do you want to enroll? So you have to opt in. Yep, you have to opt in. But what if we change this ever so slightly? You still have just as much freedom to make your own choices, but in this scenario, the company says, we offer 401k retirement plans and you've been automatically enrolled by default. If you want, though, let us know and we'll take you off the plan. Opt out. Opt out. And as it turns out, this makes a huge difference. Back in 1998, a big company in the United States changed the rules for its 401k plan. And one of the key updates was now all the new hires would be eligible and automatically enrolled in the plan unless they explicitly elected not to. This was mostly a logistical change, but someone from the company approached Bridget Madrian, an economist at the University of Chicago, and asked if she'd help analyze data from the rollout. She found that this simple nudge was an incredible success. When the new policy went into effect, a group of employees were newly eligible for the retirement plan, but were not automatically enrolled. For them, only 49% or less than half opted into the plan. But for new hires who were automatically enrolled, 86% joined the plan, only 14% opted out. This is a massive difference, especially when we're talking about exactly the same retirement plan. These results show how behavioral economics opens up doors to building programs with major implications. But it wasn't always easy to sell the idea. Industry people thought I'm the biggest idiot, another academic who doesn't understand anything. That's UCLA economics professor Shlomo Benarzi. In the late 90s, he and Richard Thaler were starting to think about how behavioral economics could be used to build a retirement savings program that would help people set aside enough cash for the future. Automatic enrollment was clearly a useful idea, but they wanted to do more than just have a bunch of people enroll in a retirement plan. They wanted to encourage people to set aside even more money. One of the early things that we tested and found out was that especially low-income, blue-collar employees knew they should save, wanted to save, and just couldn't get to do it. And that was a really critical ingredient uh, because we were not tricking people into saving more when in fact they didn't want to do it. The program they developed was called Save More Tomorrow. It wasn't necessarily an automatic enrollment plan. It was even more innovative than that. It was an automatic escalation program. 
It had three components, which were all based on behavioral economics. First was getting people to commit now to a savings plan that would get rolling in the future. This is important because we think about money differently when it's money we have now versus money we'll have in the future. It's not exactly rational, but it's what we do. It's called the present bias. If you ask people if they want to take money they have right now and put it away in a savings account, they're going to be resistant. But it's easy to do the right things in the future. We have plenty of self-control supply. The second component of this program has to do with ramping up people's savings over time. People agree to save more in the future, but when and how can they be convinced to up their contributions? We came up with the idea, what if we time it with uh, salary raises, with pay increases? People make more money and they can save a bit more and take home a bit more and they never have to cut down dining out or, or anything. And finally, we're back to defaults because all this sounds fine, but when people get their raise, are they really going to fill out the paperwork to increase their savings contribution? The program is set up so that when you enroll in the program today, it lies dormant until your next raise and then automatically kicks in, increasing your savings contributions by default every time your pay goes up. So it's on autopilot. But I mean, they, they weren't locked into this for the rest of their lives. We made it very easy to opt out. But for those who wanted to save more, it was very easy. Every time you make more money, you're going to save more. So this is all a nice idea in theory, but does it really make a difference? Yep. In their first large trial in a company with more than 300 employees who were eligible for a retirement savings plan, not only did almost 80% of the people offered the plan enroll in it, but most of them stuck with the plan for the long haul and ended up almost quadrupling their savings rate within four years. But maybe even beyond the virtues of helping people save more for their retirement, the Save More Tomorrow program was really important because it showed how the principles of behavioral economics could be applied at scale. The Save More Tomorrow model could be adopted by any company with a savings plan. So Save More Tomorrow and the 401k opt-out model can be adopted. But are they? Yes, and in a big way. In the year 2000, only 40% of employees who had access to 401k programs in the U.S. participated in them. But by 2020, that rate was more than double. And it looks like participation rates are now in the 93% range. This explosion in people enrolling in 401k plans owes a lot to the spread of automatic enrollments and programs like Save More Tomorrow. Bernardzi has occasionally crunched the numbers to figure out how many people have enrolled in a program like his. In 2013, it was 4 million people. In 2017, it was around 15 million people. And my best guesstimate today that we're looking at around 25 million people on such a program. This was a critical early indication that behavioral economics wasn't just right, but it was useful. People are setting themselves up for more comfortable retirements. Real people in the actual world. But behavioral economics was about to get a whole lot more influential. I used to be a respectable academic. That's right. I had lifetime tenure at Cambridge. What was I doing? 
That's David Halpern. He received a PhD in social and political sciences and was dutifully following the path of a professor in the UK. But when Tony Blair won re-election as prime minister in 2001, he wanted to strengthen his strategy unit to help Downing Street think more carefully about long-term policy issues by taking human psychology seriously. David was teaching a class called Psychology and Policy, and he had already pitched in on some policy work in the late 90s. He was a no-brainer. I agreed to come in on loan from Cambridge for 18 months. I ended up actually working with him for six years. In that time, this strategy unit would consider how government could improve people's lives not by forcing them to, through laws and regulations, but by designing systems that appreciate the quirks of psychology. They invited savvy researchers like Danny Kahneman to present to the group and dove into decades of experimental research. In 2009, after witnessing this policy work up close, David published a book called The Hidden Wealth of Nations, which included recommendations for future politicians. One recommendation went like this. Behavioral economics provides a powerful new set of tools for policymakers and citizens to address the challenges of today and improve the quality of our lives. The application of behavioral economics could offer substantial gains in relation to the environment, crime, pro-social behavior, education, welfare, and health. Uh, that was 2009. Did politicians take up David's call? Oh, yeah. Actually, right away. And we have David to thank. So in 2010, David Cameron begins as the new prime minister, and there's interest in integrating psychology and policy. Ideas get thrown around, Richard Thaler gets brought in to help, and eventually a small new unit starts to form. In July 2010, there's a plan in place, and the group finally has a name, the Behavioral Insights Team, or BIT, or, or BIT. Some people end up calling it the Nudge Unit, a small team of civil servants with special access to the prime minister's office. David came on full-time to lead the charge. They drafted a set of concrete objectives, transform at least two major areas of policy, spread understanding of behavioral approaches, and achieve at least a tenfold return on the cost of the units. But they set a bold deadline for themselves. If they didn't achieve their objectives within two years, they would shut down BIT. I felt it was a good discipline that why not shift the default and say that if this thing doesn't deliver, then shut it down. And by the way, shut it down early enough in your parliamentary cycle so that by the time you get to the next election, it was a distant memory if it didn't work. Um, it wasn't the only thing. It was kind of a, a number of innovative, um, if you like, policy leads that were being pursued in Downing Street at the time. And in, in many ways, what's interesting, I think, is that if you had to take a guess of which of those were going to succeed and which of them were well-resourced, the Behavioral Insights team was definitely not going to be top of your pile. It wasn't given very, very much resource. It was a slightly kooky idea. So, yeah, set it up with a sunset clause. They had to prove that behavioral economics could make good on its promises. So they started running giant experiments within the government. One important early success was an experiment to try to get people to pay their taxes. Every year, the tax deadline comes and goes. And wouldn't you know it? Some people just don't pay what they owe. Most people in the UK, 90% of them do pay their taxes on time. But could David's team take advantage of some simple psychology to get the stragglers to catch up? They don't need psychology. They just need to send everyone a letter saying, pay up or else. Okay, take it easy, Kurt. <laughs> that's, that's one way to do it, yes. 
But if we think like a behavioral scientist, we might realize that there's power in social norms. In other words, people don't just rationally process information in a vacuum. Instead, they take their cues from what other people are doing. So David's team crafted a simple reminder letter to send to 140,000 people who were late paying their taxes. That's 290 million pounds in unpaid debts. And in some of those letters, they added one extra sentence, honestly informing the person that most people in their area had already paid their taxes. One extra sentence? Just one sentence. It it showed such a beautiful, clear result. We were able to get about a 15% increase in payment rate without further prompts by changing one line in a letter. And, And that was definitely a kind of wow moment. I can literally remember sharing it with the heads of departments, we call them perm sex in Britain. And you could just almost feel the room turn as that graph comes up when they realize this is something which actually seems to work and might be useful. And I don't know, Kurt, pay up or else might also have worked. But there's a real benefit to letting simple psychology do the heavy lifting. We also looked at complaints and complaints fell because it's actually just kind of a nicer way in some ways of encouraging people to pay tax and say your your fellow citizen is more virtuous than you thought they were as opposed to threatening to take away your TV or whatever. Um, So that was interesting and again helped, I think, to reinforce the shift. Another tweak the Behavioral Insights team made to the tax system goes back to the idea that people will jump ship the moment things get just barely too difficult. Like, rationally, people should think as much as they need to in order to make optimal decisions. But life's hard. We've got dinner to make and Netflix to watch. If systems can make the right choice super easy, we'll do it. But in many places, doing your taxes is anything but straightforward. And as David says in his book, Inside the Nudge Unit, a lot of what tax authorities think is tax fraud or evasion is really just people having better things to do than wading through complicated paperwork. So what can we do about it? Well, one of BIT's early projects took issue with a letter that the tax department was sending. The letter gave people a web address that took them to a page with a link to the tax form they needed to fill out. All they had to do was click the link and fill in the form, but only one in five people would actually fill out the form. They won't file their taxes? They're cheating. Or they just got confused. David's team made a simple adjustment to the letters. Instead of giving them the address to a page with the form on it, they just gave them the address to the form itself. It saved them one click, but the proportion of people completing the tax form went up 22%. That's actually like Save More Tomorrow. The program makes it easy to put money into savings so people end up actually making better financial decisions. Exactly. And in this case, it's a simple tweak to how a government interacts with every citizen. That seems huge to me. And and it seemed huge to Bit, too. Eventually, these kinds of successes were adding up. The nudge unit had proven itself useful. No need to call in the sunset clause. Behavioral insights were there to stay. Oh my god, it does work. And so the decision to not shut it down um, was powerful. And itself became a powerful secondary signal in government, right? Because it was an active decision. Oh my god, this stuff does work. You know, let's get serious. What's the next? How do we take it to scale? But beyond just proving that behavioral economics has applications in government, David's team might have had an even more basic impact. One of the most important things, in my view, that the behavioral insights team did was it was a Trojan horse 
to some extent to bringing in randomized controlled trials and stronger empirical methods into government, popularizing them. And even when people were resistant to running experiments on citizens? The idea of doing experimentation is still unthinkable, actually, in relation to some fields. It was careful science that took down the assumptions of neoclassical economics, and it'll be careful science that shows us how to build a better society. There's often this kind of reaction which is somehow unethical to run a trial, but people tend to not think about the counter, you know, factual, which is, but you think it's ethical to do this intervention on millions of people or kids without testing if it's effective? It's incredible that that's not considered unethical, and yet the trial is. I think that the deeper barrier is that it's, you know, it's overconfidence. So often, oh my goodness, we hear, you know, someone will say, but we know what works. It's like, are you really sure you know what works? Because you've been doing that thing for years and most of the kids don't die, it doesn't mean there's not a better way of doing it. It wasn't long before other governments began to notice. In the United States, the Obama administration worked to establish a unit like Halpern's Behavioral Insights Team. In 2014, the White House established the Social and Behavioral Science Team, or SBST. A year later, September 15, 2015, Obama issued Executive Order 13707. It was called Using Behavioral Science Insights to Better Serve the American People. The order says, quote, the federal government should design its policies and programs to reflect our best understanding of how people engage with, participate in, use, and respond to those policies and programs. All of this makes the SBST seem like it's some exceptionally well-established, ready-to-go plan. But you know, we didn't like we didn't really have like a dedicated office space or anything. I actually spent like the first few days just trying to figure out how to even get into the building or anything like that. There wasn't a whole lot of playbook for how to to do this and really no institutional setup for it either. That's David Yoakum. While he was a grad student in psychology, he became a founding member of the SBST along with cognitive scientist Maya Shankar. And Maya and I were both new to government. And so a lot of this was being made up kind of on the fly. We certainly had a stretch there of press that hit that was quite skeptical and wary that there was something nefarious happening, that there was some sort of unit being put together to distribute propaganda, manipulate the budget. So like I had a moment where I literally moved to DC, get there, press hits the next day, and I'm wondering whether it's going to get shut down 12 hours later. Fortunately, the SBST was able to get to work, drumming up business, finding ways to use science to make things run more smoothly. But if you're picturing some buttoned-up professors rubbing elbows with diplomats in the storied halls of American history, think again. Even just those moments where, you know, I'm like down in the basement of the General Service Administration building. It's like no windows. I'm in the IT room with like falling computers and keyboards around and talking to uh, like Larry, the IT guy, you know, he's got like the, the ponytail haircut and everything. He's like perfect IT guy. And we're trying to figure out how to randomize some old code. And he's never run an experiment or anything, but the kind of conversation we have and getting him excited about the work in a way that like nobody had ever come down to his basement office before and invited him to think about one of the big giant structural issues for the agency. The fact that he was kind of in that mix 
And then seeing the kinds of ideas that those individuals would throw in was really sort of a special part of this project. And we ended up just getting all kinds of great ideas from people that had been in the civil service for a long time, maybe didn't have the right opportunities to pitch in on these kind of things. And that was just very humbling. It was very interesting. And I felt very fortunate to have those kinds of encounters. Eventually, the group was humming along and getting things done. In their first year, their work already meant that more service members were saving for retirement, more students were going to college, more veterans were taking advantage of their benefits, more small farms were gaining access to credit, and more families were securing health insurance coverage. For example, remember how David Halpern's team in the UK was able to get people to pay their taxes just by making it easier to access the form? Well, the SBST was doing the same sort of thing, streamlining all sorts of programs. In one case, the government provides aid for kids from low-income families to go to college. And even though it would be a super optimal rational decision to apply for that funding, plenty of people don't because it's confusing and overwhelming. But a study in the Quarterly Journal of Economics had shown that students were more likely to eventually go to college and stay in college if they simply got some help filling out this paperwork. Making it easy nudged people to actually get it done. So the folks at the SBST caught wind of this study and shared it with the Department of Education, who then started streamlining the forms to request college assistance, even letting people automatically complete parts of the forms with the data that was already on file. It's amazing, this behavioral economics movement that used data to make a theoretical point about economics set off a chain of events that led to huge governments redesigning their everyday practices so that their policies and programs could have a deep impact on people's lives. It's like, it's cool for me to like look back and see a picture of meeting with President Obama. That's kind of cool. But honestly, I think if I like the kinds of stories I'm going to tell my kids as they're getting older are actually more likely to be about some of these interactions I'm having with the people that are directly impacted by these policies. And I don't know, maybe that sounds corny to say, but that's where the impact really happens. And if you experience it directly, it's it's something that is just, it's just very humbling. It makes you realize that you're a part of something much bigger than any particular project or any particular idea you might have. And that's, that's something to consider and appreciate as special. As nudge units in the UK and the US governments, as well as in other countries, have thrived, they inspired units like the Basara Center to form. According to Faisal Nero, the executive director of the Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, the number of teams applying behavioral insights to public policy has grown to more than 400 around the globe as of 2022. And that's just those focused on public policy. There are dozens of agencies focused on things like marketing, human resources, risk and compliance. It's incredible to see so many agencies using behavioral science to inform their decision-making. And when we think of moving from the ivory tower to Main Street, this change happened fast, really fast. Danny Kahneman. It's astonishingly quick, the adoption of behavioral economics. I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, prospect theory is 1979, and it's People basically ignore it, except for a few quite important people. Then Rabin got the clock medal 
that was the first thing, and I got the Nobel in, in quick succession. That was about 20 years, so that's, that's extremely quick for the adoption of really a strange body of, of ideas. So uh, I have nothing to complain about. So behavioral economics is a success story, but now what? Is the story over? Not at all. In the last installment of this series, we're going to talk with young behavioral economists who are pushing this field into new frontiers. They Thought We Were Ridiculous is written and reported by Andy Luttrell, Kurt Nelson, and Tim Houlihan. Editing and sound design by Andy Luttrell. Thanks to Ben Granlin, Alex Belangi, and Alexa Cover for design and marketing. And thanks to Mary Califf and Caroline Schaefer for other assistance along the way. Music licensed by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Transcripts with key source citations are available. Check out the episode webpage. Thanks to the guests whose voices you heard, including Channing Jang, Drajan Prelek, Richard Thaler, George Lowenstein, Colin Kammerer, Sindel Mullenathan, Danny Kahneman, Liam Delaney, Stephen Roll, Shlomo Benartzi, David Halpern, and David Yoakum. Although his voice didn't make it into the episode, we also thank Bill Congdon for his insight into the White House social behavioral science team. This mini-series is a co-production of two podcasts. Opinion Science is hosted by Annie Littrell and explores the science of people's opinions, where they come from, and how they talk about them. Behavioral Grooves is hosted by Tim Houlihan and Kurt Nelson and explores our human condition through a behavioral science lens. You can find more information on both of those shows in the episode description. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.